Section 2 of The Spirit of American Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malcolm Cameron. The Spirit of American Literature by John Albert Macy. Section 2. Irving. A free people, says Irving, are apt to be grave and thoughtful. They have high and important matters to occupy their minds. They feel that it is their right, their interest, and their duty to mingle in public concerns and to watch over the general welfare. The continual exercise of the mind on political topics gives intenser habits of thinking and a more serious and earnest demeanor. A nation becomes less gay, but more intellectually active and vigorous. It invinces less play of the fancy, but more power of the imagination, less taste and elegance, but more grandeur of mind, less animated vivacity, but deeper enthusiasm. It is when men are shut out of the regions of manly thought by a despotic government, where every grave and lofty theme is rendered perilous to discussion and almost to reflection. It is then that they turn to the safer occupations of taste and amusement. Trifles rise to importance and occupy the craving activity of intellect. No being is more void of care and reflection than the slave. None dances more gaily in his intervals of labor. But make him free. Give him rights and interests to guard. And he becomes thoughtful and laborious. Had the creator of Dietrich Knickerbocker, Ichabod Crane, and Rip Van Winkle habitually dwelt in this sober mood of the foregoing passage, he would have been an obscure case in support of his own queer theory. Whether or not merriment and sweet fancy were oppressed by the spirit of liberty which dominated America a century ago, the genius of Irving refused to succumb. The piper of the mystic song of liberty may have led the children under the mountain of civil rights. Irving is the boy who came back. A grown-up child, he calls himself, speaking in the person of Geoffrey Crayon. Through a long and peaceful life he remained impenitently gay, while Governor Clinton, amid the acclamations of the multitude, symbolizes the completion of the Erie Canal by pouring two kegs of Lake Erie water into the Atlantic, Irving peoples the banks of the Hudson with elves and goblins. The railroad soon renders the Erie Canal as obsolete as any piece of Egyptian engineering. But Irving's creations are not displaced by successors. His fresh voice of laughter and romance still rings solitary along the Hudson Palisades. Irving was a child of fortune. His father was in comfortable circumstances, and the young man was able to indulge in three pleasures which cherished his talents. Innocent idling among the people of New York, especially in the older parts of the town and along the waterfront, writing and publishing for the sport of it, and traveling in Europe. The delicate state of his health made it necessary, or advisable, that he should make sea voyages. Since his invalidity did not assume painful forms, nor fetter his work either as a man of letters or a man of affairs, it may be regarded as fortunate, for it won him dispensation 
which his father would not perhaps have accorded to a robust young man. Irving's genius was not so powerful that it would have hewn works of art out of strife and poverty. His gentle fancy was nourished by well-being, by leisure to indulge his amiable indolence, to sit on the bank and watch life stream by, to catch a glimpse of a comic old face in the crowd or the fluttering ribbon on a girl's bonnet. Yet he was not an irresponsible idler who filled his knapsack from other people's larders and paid his debt to the heirs of the almoners in priceless books. He was a good businessman and self-reliant. At the age of 26, he proved his literary gifts and won flattering applause by his Knickerbocker's History of New York. But he rejected the alluring career of letters, went into partnership with his brother, and for 10 years devoted himself to trade. It was only when the business failed that he published his second volume, The Sketchbook, which was so popular as to warrant, not only from an artistic but from a practical point of view, his committing himself to the literary career. He had justified his leisure, and he continued to earn a right to it. When he loafed, he invited his soul and not the censure of his family. His was a happy and normal life. He wandered through the woods, communing with pixies and the ghosts of mythical Dutchmen. His fancy kept company with tatterdemalions and taproom idlers. But he was a handsome, fashionable young bachelor, and he lived amid the conventional best society. If the death of his sweetheart threw a cloud of melancholy over his life, the shadow of the cloud is not upon his work. There is no trace in his writings of the tragedy of actual life. His portrait is a most satisfying presentment of the kind of man who ought to have written his books. It shows a broad brow, with a hair curled youthfully about the temples, a straight, sensible nose, a wide, humorous mouth twitching at the corners, even in the repose of an engraving, eyes clear, observant, not piercing, the whole face placid and prosperous, the head held with dignity above a full chest. The picture of our first man of letters is also a portrait of a gentleman scholarly diplomat. Irving was minister to Spain and discharged his public duties in a credible manner. He received whatever honor academic and political officialdom can bestow upon a literary man, and the pride and affection of his countrymen followed him for forty years. He was welcomed in Europe, in Thackeray's happy phrase, as the first ambassador whom the new world of letters sent to the old. Perhaps the old world of letters was not in aching need of a messenger from our world of letters, but our world was starving for a voice of romance. Irving taught America that the star of romance shines above the forests of Astoria as truly as above Alhambra. Indeed, the spell that Irving cast over Astoria makes us forget that he was playing press agent for a land grubber and a swindler of Indians. Irving also taught us that the literary spirit is whimsical and expresses life by devious indirection, that it says what one would not expect it to say and blandly ignores momentous matters. Irving inaugurated American literature not with the trumpets of rebellion, 
not with an epic elevation befitting a people who had conquered a wilderness, but with quiet, old-fashioned humor, a cultivated, reserved accent, urbane manners, and a smiling indifference to certain local passions. Even at home, he is a sympathetic and observant tourist, intimately acquainted with what he sees, but not immersed in its currents of thought. He does not make us feel what most stirred the hearts and perplexed the mind of any considerable class of Americans in the year 1825. From the social contests, the clashing forces of mind and economic necessities, the industrial and spiritual developments by reason of which we are now alive and what we are, Irving is almost as aloof as Poe. It may be that the apparent contrast between Irving's interests and what we now imagine to have been the most intense interests of his contemporaries is due to his temperament and to that side of it which enabled him to seek the society of the immortals. Perhaps a man more soaked with reality could not have come forth from the life about him and risen above the threshold of expression. There was in his time but a small recognized leisure class a thin, cultivated stratum of people upheld by church, university, family tradition, and well-founded prosperity. The best brains of the people were busy with the problem of getting a livelihood. A man had to be doing something obviously worthwhile or lose self-respect and the respect of his neighbors. A long-established culture that lives at the expense of the multitude, such is the dependence of culture in all capitalistic societies, may be unjustified from the point of view of social equity, but at least such a culture has leisure and training to express itself in art. In a young country, for the settlement of which the only motive is to find a living for oneself by labor or exploitation, and that is the motive for the colonizing of America despite the stories of the quest for religious liberty and other superstitions of history, every able man works, the drone is either the unfit, incapable of producing literature or anything else, or the exploiter on the alert for commercial advantage. The worthy individual who wins exemption from the workaday struggle wins it after a youth of toil or business responsibility, and he is then not habituated to aesthetic interests and the pursuit of art. Before Irving, most American books that remain important were written by men of affairs, politicians and clergymen, such as Cotton Mather, Jonathan Edwards, Franklin, and the orators and pamphleteers of the Revolution. After Irving had become famous, there grew up in America academic societies which favored the muse of the New England group and constituted a circle encouraging readers. There also arose the commercial institution of professional journalism, which gave a career to a few whose pens, competent to earn some sort of living, were also competent to do work for the ages. The first flower of this institution was Poe. In America, there was no such thing as pensioned authors. Idle clergymen living on church incomes and devoting their time to literature holders of easy places under the government and enabled to spend their afternoons in writing, in Irving's youth, the temptation to write for a livelihood was slight. The economic conditions put no premium on labors of the fancy. To be a literary man in the society that surrounded Irving was to be a dreamer 
and a wanderer. A man with a vital sense of reality would have been in the thick of the practical struggle. In a society which has no literary tradition, which is not accustomed to having a poet or two in the neighborhood, the first man to lift himself to the privileged class of authors is the man of light and untroubled fancy. Irving's circumstances relieved him from the harshest necessity of earning his daily bread. Life did not bear hard on him, and he did not look hard at life. Fortune and his lightness of spirit agreed to let him play with literature until he and the world found it a good business for him. Irving initiated our imaginative literature in a holiday mood. He and his brother William, with J.K. Paulding, a writer of some experience, founded in 1807 a bi-weekly periodical called Salmagundi. It was a pastime entered into with the enthusiasm which many a young man had thrown into a journalistic venture and has maintained until unpaid printer's bills have stifled jubilant enterprise. Had Irving and his brother been poor, as they were manly and honest, they must have gone immediately and with their whole energy into gainful occupations. Irving would have had no apprenticeship in which to try his pen. In the words of the valedictory of Salmagundi, he would have let immortality slip through his fingers. As things were, he could practice writing while to senior eyes he was respectably studying law and he could get his first work published without waiting upon the rigors of the market. Before business responsibilities fell on him, he had commenced author in a small way and discovered his talents. In the slight papers of Salmagundi, modeled upon the English periodical essayist, he had sharpened his style for Knickerbocker's History of New York. The History of New York is a merry piece of fooling, it's a parody of the pretentious historical style and a satire on the spurious heroic in colonial legend. It is full of burlesque yarns, extravagant adventures, and jolly caricatures of the Dutch burghers. The literary skill of the book lies in its sustained narrative swing, the grave rhythm of the periods which carry nonsensical matter. The mere joker cannot achieve this, it is true comic art. Soon after Irving had tried his wings in the history of New York, he was obliged to fold them and content himself with the solid earth. He engaged in business and five years later went on a commercial errand to England. He remained in Europe 17 years. In 1820, he published The Sketchbook, a collection of miscellaneous pieces that had appeared in American periodicals. Among them were Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Rip took his place at once among the favorite heroes of the fantastic story. And later he became doubly endeared to the American people by his incarnation in the genial person of Joseph Jefferson. Irving's tale is so simple, so familiar, that in rereading it, one may easily take it for granted and not be struck by its genius. To be convinced that it is a masterpiece, one needs to but reflect how infrequently such a tender weanling is adopted as the child of time, 
A little thing that happens seldom is important. The story of Rip is based on a German legend, and the origin accounts in some measure for the elementary directness of the tale, a virtue that sophisticated art cannot easily counterfeit, but can easily destroy. Irving has preserved the quality of a folktale, and at the same time he permits himself the privilege of winking at the reader over the head of Knickerbocker. Rip Van Winkle is not an accidental, solitary success. All the stories in the sketchbook, notably The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and other yarns, comic and creepy, in Bracebridge Hall and Tales of a Traveler, are well told with sprightly verve and grace. There are no afterthoughts or underpurposes. The attitude is that of a familiar raconteur who has no object in the world but to entertain his company, to puff his pipe in fireside ease and give the tale as twas given him. This style of narrative never hints that it is difficult to do and deceives one into overlooking its remarkable rare excellence. Irving's avowed debt to Goldsmith and his fondness for tales of British squiredom warrant to some extent the view that he is an imitator of the English essayists and character sketches of the 18th century. He has been called a belated American goldsmith. There has arisen, in one quarter, the curious notion, a theory running wild with a little fact in its mouth, that American literature is habitually a generation behind English literature. Even Holmes, a very modern man, is accounted for in the term of the 18th century spirit. The truth seems to be that 19th century thought everywhere is eclectic, and of its many voices, each is germane to the times. Any man, anywhere, writing at the opening of the last century, is inevitably dependent on the 18th century. In England, a small group of men, Lamb, Hazlitt, Coleridge, Keats, Shelley, were in revolt against the 18th century. They withdrew from the dominion of Dr. Johnson and made splendid new alliances with Milton and Thomas Brown. As time goes by, this group of revolters grows greater and greater in our admiration. Until to our eyes, they stand for their times, and we see them like a range of hills beyond which lies the 18th century plateau. But this is an illusion of perspective. A survey of the country shows that Keats and Lamb and Coleridge did not dominate their own age. Their contemporaries, Southey, Scott, even Byron, were not so clearly emancipated from the preceding age. In literature, the transition from period to period is gradual, like the passing from adolescence to manhood. The 18th century never ended and the 19th century did not at any definite moment begin. Literature is a continuous processus. One writer looks a little ahead, another harks back to an immediately or distant earlier time. Irving is no more filled with the 18th century spirit than are many of his British contemporaries. Byron and Scott are his heroes no less than Goldsmith, and he makes pilgrimages to Newstead Abbey and Abbotsford. 
His attitude towards Johnson is that of the 19th century romantic making a case for the gentle poetic goldsmith against the kindly tyranny of the critical prosaic bear. Irving is not, of course, akin to the spirit of revolt that now seems the most significant fact of the age of Wordsworth. He is a conventional man, with no very profound convictions, no intense theory of life. His philosophy is that of the amiable, gifted man of the world of all times and places. I have always had an opinion that much good might be done by keeping mankind in good humor with one another, such a philosophy does not proceed from a nature that is torn by everlasting problems, but it is not referable to any special period of literary thought. It is as near to Scott as to Addison. It is as remote from Swift as from Shelley. Irving's nature combines good portions of sentiment and manly common sense. In no one book of his are these elements more harmoniously blended than in his Life of Goldsmith. Here he is not in whimsical masquerade as Knickerbocker or Crayon, and he is not laboring over a complex subject as in his biographies of Columbus and Washington. The man Irving talks with an old-fashioned, dignified informality about the man Goldsmith. The book is one of the masterpieces of literary biography, attracting the reader to author and to subject, like Watson's Lives of Doan and Herbert. He understands Goldsmith and his friends and is at home in their society. He is quite free from the later fallacy of biographical essayists that criticism is a science. He has the acumen of humorous good sense and the gift of appreciating the charm of others in the act of being charming himself. He pays his respects to Boswell with good-natured sharpness. Boswell, he says, was a Unitarian in his literary devotion and disposed to worship none but Johnson. Never since the days of Don Quixote and Sancho Panza has there been presented to the world a more whimsically contrasted pair of associates than Johnson and Boswell. At about the time that Irving was penning these words, a heavier humor was being brandished over Boswell's head by Thomas Carlyle. The careers of Goldsmith and Johnson were being subjected to philosophic inquiry, or unphilosophic assertion, more profound and more puzzle-headed than a simple man like Irving was capable of. Irving's unlabored appreciation seems more appropriate to his subject than the more complex disputes of Victorian criticism. His talents conform naturally to a subject that he chose in obedience to temperamental kinship. The few desultory remarks at the close of his book are nonetheless wise for their smiling graciousness. Goldsmith, he says, carries through his career the wayward elfin spirit the same spirit accompanied his American biographer. The limitations of the talent that makes the life of Goldsmith so entirely satisfying are revealed in the voluminous biography of Washington. That is a patient, laborious book upon which Irving spent years of study. When he undertook it, he had become a responsible ambassador with a sense of formal obligations to patriotism and scholarship. The work forced his genius out of its natural course. 
I do not know how historians regard his life of Washington, whether it is to them more or less sound than the investigations of other historians in those days when chroniclers were men of letters unharassed by scientific conscience. To a casual reader, the book sounds tired, and that is a defect permitted to accurate historians, but not to myth-makers and essayists who in other works have won us with unveracious stories. The study of Washington was carried out in the closing years of Irving's life and was interrupted by illness, which may explain its lack of vivacity. Except for this lack, the tone of the book is admirable. Irving's candor and reserve deliver him from the temptations of hero worship. We have avoided, he says, rhetorical amplifications and embellishments and all gratuitous assumptions and have sought by simple and truthful details to give his character an opportunity of developing itself. During Irving's life there grew up and solidified an inflexible image which pious oratory and uncritical patriotism hallowed as the father of our country. That dehumanized myth ought to have been replaced by Irving's manly portrait. Perhaps the length of his work diminished its effect, for although the four substantial volumes were well received and an audience was ensured by the popularity of author and subject, the public naturally contents itself with short accounts of our first president and does not make household companions of Irving's long book nor of Spark's compendious documents. The restoration of Washington to human proportions was a task left to our contemporary, Mr. Owen Wister. Irving's genius is not that of a great historian, but rather that of a picturesque chronicler who selects the adventurous and the vivid. He is therefore more successful with Spanish history and biography than with the annals of America. His Life of Columbus is an absorbing book. We may credit his statement that it is faithfully digested from a great variety of authentic sources, and we may justly remain indifferent to the degree of error which it may betray in the light of subsequent studies. From the most reprehensible errors, it is splendidly free from the errors of stupidity, from the errors that attend a lack of imagination. Is it too much to say that Irving's style, resonant and full of color, set a standard for American historians, to which is owing in some measure the rich readability of Prescott and Parkman? And is it presumptuous to suggest that there has departed a glory from historical writing, which in these alert and many talented days might advantageously be recovered by those historiographers who discourse of affairs orderly as they were done. Of the arid and cautiously accurate, there is no lack. And there is plenty, too, of the over-rhetorical, which results from the efforts of mediocrity to sound the pipes of eloquence. Professional historians, who would be neither dry nor sentimental, might profitably go to school to Irving and learn that verity is not incompatible with the stately charm of his style. The mind is stimulated, certainly. It is not distracted from the true order of events by such a sentence as this from the life of Columbus. What consoled the Spaniards for the asperity of the soil was to observe among the sands of those crystal streams 
glittering particles of gold which though scanty in quantity were regarded as an earnest of the wealth locked up within the mountains it may be that the pleasant appeal of that sentence to an american ear is due to the subject wealth in which only america among the nations of the earth has evinced any considerable interest a bit of irony not out of place in a chapter on irving for it was he who invented the phrase almighty dollar the flower of irving's residence in spain and his study of spanish chronicles is the alhambra this book is a sketchy and informal and in the exigencies of history do not compel irving's genius beyond its delicate powers his style is fit for this enchanted place the fragmentary traditions furnish him with the sort of fanciful short story which he knew how to touch with pretty skill in these inconsequential tales spun with fine zest and pretending to no virtuous purpose but the giving of pleasure irving meets the genius of the arabian nights and is not dwarfed by it certain american books have sufficient depth and breadth to be called masterpieces they stand self-contained and all but assured of immortality such books are the scarlet letter the house of the seven gables uncle tom's cabin the autocrat of the breakfast table huckleberry finn other books like emerson's essays and whitman's poems contain matter of loftiest quality yet in such brief form that the author's title to mastery lies in the collected work rather than in any single unit of art in neither of these ultimate classes can irving be included though one would not wish to quarrel with whoever should call rip van winkle a self-secure masterpiece nevertheless irving is for all his bulky histories essentially a sketcher a miscellanist his place is on one of the gentler lower slopes of literature in the company suggested by the subtitle of bracebridge hall the humorist a medley biographical note irving was born in new york city april third seventeen eighty three he died at Sunnyside, near Tarrytown, New York, November 28, 1859. He traveled in Europe from 1804 to 1806. He studied law and was admitted to the bar, but did not practice. He went to England on business in 1815. The business failed the next year, but he remained in England until 1820. The next nine years he spent on the continent of Europe. In 1826 he was attaché of the United States Legation in Spain, and in 1829 he was appointed Secretary of Legation at London. From 1832 to 1842 he lived at Sunnyside on the Hudson. He was Minister to Spain from 1842 to 1846. The rest of his life was spent in New York and at Sunnyside. His works are Salmagundi, 1807-1808, Knickerbocker's History of New York, 1809, Sketchbook, 
1819 to 1820, Bracebridge Hall, 1822, Tales of a Traveler, 1824, Life and Voyages of Columbus, 1828, The Conquest of Granada, 1829, The Companions of Columbus, 1831, The Alhambra, 1832, Crayon Miscellanies, 1835, Astoria, 1836, Adventures of Captain Bonneville, 1837, Oliver Goldsmith, 1849, Mahomet and His Successors, 1849, Wolfert's Roost, 1855, Life of Washington, 1855 to 1859, Spanish Papers, 1866. It is worth noting, as a matter of literary history and as an example of Irving's magnanimity, that he had planned to write the Chronicles of the Conquest of Mexico, but when he heard that Prescott had the same plan, he yielded the subject to his junior. Irving was not married. His nephew, Pierre Irving, edited his Life and Letters. The best biography of Irving is that by Charles Dudley Warner in American Men of Letters. End of section two. Narrated by Malcolm Cameron, Mystic, Connecticut.